This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a speaker, an author, and an executive coach, and today I am delighted to welcome Buki Mosaku to the show. Buki will offer insight about how to effectively equip you to call out and navigate career-stifling unconscious bias in a way that removes tension and builds trust. Buki, welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Karen. Oh, my goodness. I am delighted. Uh, you and I were chatting before the show started, and I, I devoured your book. Uh, it's so important. And I learned a lot, and I want to make sure that that this audience around the world, we've got listeners in 16 countries, learn wow. as well. You've been at this for, for 23 years. You've got this phenomenal London-based consultancy. It's called Diverse City Think Tank, and I love the play on words there. So diversity, Diverse City Think Tank, a workplace bias and diversity and inclusion consultancy. But you're very very um, vulnerable in the book. And you talk about the fact that you've been exposed to racial bias. So set us up, tell us a little bit about your story and why this is so important. Yeah. So look, you know, um, in those 23 years of being in consulting, I was exposed, as you said correctly, to um, uh, bias, um, in particular racial bias. But the problem is, you know, when, when, when you hear somebody, or not the problem, but the thing is, when you hear somebody, uh, uh, an ethnic minority, black ethnic minority, talk about being exposed or being confronted by racial bias, the, the, the unconscious or the immediate assumption is that it was towards them. And yes, sometimes it was towards me, but sometimes it was mine towards other, to, to, towards the majority. And so this kind of created a kind of conflict and challenge in my mind. And I'll give you an example. I, um, at times I would do, do deals in, uh, in the embryonic stages of my business. And um, I would sense bias towards me and that I wasn't getting the deal. And so I'd be really upset about that. And so I'd be cursing out the, uh, um, uh, the, the decision maker or decision makers. And, um, and I'd just, you know, be really upset about it. And then what would happen is I'd forget about that opportunity. But then two weeks later, I'd get a call. And they say, Bookie, we loved you. We really want to do business with you. And I think, oh, my God, thank God people can't read minds. If they'd heard what I was saying about them, they would, you know, this would be crazy. So, and this kind of happened to me a couple of times, more than a couple of times. Um, so sometimes I did correctly sense bias towards me, unconscious bias. Um, but other times um, I was wrong. And so um, I kind of didn't understand what was going on. There was a there was a kind of misinterpretation going on in my mind. The And so... For that reason, I kind of came up with this methodology, right? Which you know, uh, which was the result as a result of a quest into working out how to navigate bias, both your own and others, towards you. And the other thing which occurred to me was when I sensed bias, the overwhelming feeling that I would have in my mind is I just can't understand how people uh, could be so unfair the incivility, the injustice of this behavior. I just can't understand it. You know, I can't believe that somebody could be so nice and then so wicked in their behavior and decision-making. 
And what I found was that I was calling it in. I was calling in the sensed bias in. And I thought to myself, well, what if I could call it out? And as I said, that led me on a quest to work out how to call out sensed bias and uh, the development of my methodology, which was IDU, which stands for I Don't Understand, the name of my book. You know, I, I'm smiling ear to ear because I, I chuckled when you said we can't mind read and maybe that's good. And, and you're so <laughs> right. You know, I work with, with individuals as a coach and that's where we get hung up. We think we know what someone's thinking, yeah. but we just don't. That's just not a possibility. But let me go back exactly. to your IDU methodology. I don't understand. I find that so refreshing because it's so <laughs> honest and, and vulnerable. And the truth is we don't always understand. So tell us more about that methodology and how we can really wrestle with the two-way street. It's, it's not singular. It is multidirectional. Uh, yeah, and I love, I, I'm so glad you picked up and said that because I think that's the biggest challenge in terms of dealing with unconscious, career stifling unconscious bias in the workplace, be it based on race and ethnicity, be it based on gender, be it based on sexual orientation, age, religion, or anything else, or disability. Um, what we have to recognize, and this is the problem, is that it's, a, it's multidirectional. That is, when you sense bias, you are 100% correct. You actually are sensing bias. But the problem is, and this is where people mess up, right? Um, uh, you could be sensing bias towards you, or you could be sensing your own bias towards the other person or persons. But we shortcut and anchor to what we've been conditioned to believe about a particular group when we're on the receiving end of unfavorable decisions or behavior. And we assume that they're coming from a place of bias, when that could be our bias. So in order to navigate bias, you have to allow for the your misinterpretation. But the problem is nobody allows for the misinterpretation. We just think that we know. And as a result, um, uh, we get into trouble because we misinterpret bias. And then we become the perpetrator, in my case, right, the typical victim, um, becomes the perpetrator and the majority becomes uh, um, the victim of that perpetrator, regardless of seniority. And so this recognition of the two-way street nature as opposed to a one-way street approach to dealing with bias is key. And um, this is the problem. You know, 99% of organizations in the US and in Europe, right, have a one-way street view of bias. And so all of their strategies right, are, are based on this one-way street view. And, in, and, and, in, and because of that, they subscribe to what I describe as a guilty perpetrator versus hapless victim model, which says that there are these people who look a certain way, walk and talk a certain way. They are the guilty perpetrator by default. And there are these people who look a certain way and walk and talk a certain way, and they are the hapless victim. When in reality, it's, it's fluid in the moment. So that's an oversimplistic look at it. And we need to unsubscribe from this guilty perpetrator versus hapless victim model in order to navigate it effectively. So let's pull a thread there, Boogie, because I, I so appreciate that the book is very proactive and it's almost a playbook that, that helps us navigate this because it is difficult territory. And I hear you loud and clearly, the assumption, the mind reading is what gets us hung up in so many scenarios. So where to start? You know, when you're in that real time moment, what's the first thing you need to do? 
So it's a very good question. I think there are a couple of things we can do. Um, uh, the first thing is what I say is like we need. We, I think we have an internal GPS, right? An inter, or, or, or what I describe as an internal GPS, right? Um, and that is first of all, we we need to um, determine what type of bias we're on the receiving end of, right? And so I've kind of. Um, I've kind of uh, categorized the biases that we, we can be on the receiving end of. So the first is what I describe as simple bias, right? So simple bias is what is commonly known as microaggressions. That is subtle slights and, and, and behaviors towards a particular group based on their difference. So maybe if I'm a, a person who's wheelchair bound, uh, maybe my colleagues are constantly trying to push me around and help me when actually I don't necessarily need that help. That would be a form of microaggression, you know, because unconsciously it's exclusionary. It's saying that you're not like us. We need to make allowances for you. And sometimes those allowances aren't necessarily required. So that would be a microaggression. Or if um, somebody because of my ethnicity. Somebody makes comments about negative conditioned views about people like me, and they do it unconsciously. So they might say, oh, your lot do this. Or, you know, or maybe if I'm, you know, I've heard people, women, uh, black women say, to African-American women say to me that, um, you know, people have asked to touch their hair. You know, can I touch your hair? This kind of thing. These are all forms of microaggressions. And so, you know, what, what, a while back, when I used to speak, people used to say to me, and this would be primarily the majority because I am a minority, people used to say to me, Bookie, you speak so well. You really speak so well. And I would see that as a some kind of microaggression. So internally, I would say, why do you think I speak so well? It's just because I'm a black guy, right? You don't expect me to speak so well. So I would see it as a black backhanded comment. And that would be my internal dialogue. But then I thought, hang on. Maybe they just thought I spoke so well compared to the last speaker. Yeah, or or just right. or only you. You spoke well. You right. just, just think yeah. I speak well. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I thought actually I, I had a conflict, and then I thought to myself, well, you know, and so I thought to myself, well, I've got to sort this out. And the other thing, which is just an aside, but it's worth mentioning, is that this used to always happen in the morning. So it'd end up ruining my lunch, oh. right? Because I'd have this kind of conflict. And lunch is way good to be ruined, don't you think, Carol? I totally right? agree. <laughs> so, so it would ruin my lunch. So I thought, I really have to sort this out. So I thought, right, I'm going to, next time somebody says I speak so well or makes or says I'm eloquent or anything like that, I'm going to respond. So I decided that I'd come up with a way of dealing with my sensed microaggression towards me. And it was a three-step process, right? So the first step was just to give the person the benefit of the doubt. Just give them the benefit of the doubt. That was the first step. Even if you, even if it sounded malicious, assume it's unconscious. And if it, you weren't sure whether it was malicious, whatever they said, just give them the benefit of the doubt. So that was the first step, give them the benefit of the doubt. Then the second step was light reconditioning. Just light reconditioning. So if a person says to me that I speak so well, instead of getting all annoyed and having that internal dialogue, assume that they mean that you speak so well. Just say, oh, thank you. So do you. Now, if you sense that there was some kind of unconscious bias there or some kind of microaggression, then you can do what I describe as light reconditioning. 
and just say to them, oh, um, uh, thank you. You sound surprised. And then move on and enjoy your lunch. That's it. So three steps there for when it comes to microaggressions, right? Step one is give the person the benefit of the doubt. Step two is light reconditioning, which is usually through humor, right? Um, but not always, just a, a comment sort of in kind to what you've received from the person. And then move on and enjoy your lunch. Because the problem with microaggressions is not the one comment. It's the accumulation of comments and the impact that that has on your well-being, attention, and uh, general mental health, right? So if you can stop it in its tracks by following that process, you're going to, you know, you're less likely to fall foul and be a victim of microaggressions. The problem is, is that people don't say anything and there's an accumulation, and then um, that affects the way that they feel, their well-being, and their mental health. So that's simple bias. Just uh, give the person the benefit of the doubt, light reconditioning, and then move on and enjoy your lunch. Very simple. So that was a process for dealing with microaggressions, right? And then the second type of um, uh, uh, kind of uh, unconscious bias, career-stifling unconscious bias, is what I describe as complex career-stifling bias, right? And this is one which I think really affects underrepresentation of minorities, which, you know, uh, is, is a serious problem in the U.S. And, and in the West in general, right? And this is like, for example, maybe you're not shortlisted for a role, right? And you're, or you're not shortlisted for partner, and you think you're, you're more than ready for that role. It may, in fact, you're better than the people that have been. And maybe you think because of your race and ethnicity, they didn't shortlist you, or because of your gender, or because of your disability, or your sexual orientation, right? This is what we, it's very, it's, it's you sense it, but it's very hard to prove. And um, it can be very subjective. So uh, it's very difficult to deal with. Now, and so, and you don't want to say anything or that accuses somebody because you don't want to look like an agitator or a non-team player. And so most people don't say anything. But I think we should say anything, say something. And so I've got a four-step process for dealing with that, right? What I call career-stifling bias, right? The complex career-stifling bias. And so step one is set your mindset. Set your mindset. That is... What I mean by that is that you have to leave all your baggage at the door. This can be baggage that you have every right to be carrying, but you've got to drop it. So what I mean by that is racial bias baggage. What I mean by that is gender bias baggage. What I mean by that is disability bias baggage, sexual orientation baggage, based on what you can see around you and the representation in your organization and in your sector, right, or in senior roles in the, in the country right? Um, and in the company, right? Um, you probably have right a right to be suspicious about not getting um, a fair chance or a fair crack of the whip in terms of opportunities, right? But you've got to drop it, right? Now, the question that I would ask you, Caroline, is why do you think I'm saying that you have to drop that as step one? I think you need to clear the way and, and, and make room for um, new information, right? Just to, to cl clear the clutter, if you will. Exactly, exactly. So I think yeah, you have to clear the way. I mean, have you seen have you seen Karate Kid? Did you watch that film? Oh yes, yes. Did you see the original? Oh yes. Yeah, Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Mr. Mr. Miyagi had a protege called Daniel, 
right? And Daniel was bullied, right? And, Daniel, and so Mr. Miyagi teaches him karate and he becomes really good. And he, he get, enters into a contest and he's in his final fight. And he's really scared because he's been doing so well and he thinks he's going to lose and then he's going to get all the bullying again. And he gets really scared. And Mr. Miyagi says to him, empty your head, empty your head. And the reason why he's asking him to empty his head is so that he can have clarity, right? Clarity. And it's exactly the same thing. Um, by dropping the baggage, right, you have clarity because when you ca carry that baggage with you, it impairs your wisdom, it impairs your judgment, and it impairs your vision. So you have to drop it. You need to drop it like a bad habit. If you want, pick it up on the way out. But what you'll find is if you follow this process, there'll be no baggage left for you to pick up. So you need to drop it. And that allows you to move to step two. And the, in fact, the only way that you can get to step two is by dropping that baggage that I mentioned. So the question then becomes, well, what is step two? So step two is give the person the benefit of the doubt. So just let me recap there. Step one is set your mindset. Leave your baggage at the door. Leave your luggage in the lobby, right? Step two is give the person or persons the benefit of the doubt. But here's the rub, right? Call them out anyway. Call them out anyway. So give them the benefit of the doubt. However certain you are of bias or mistreatment or misunderstanding, give them the benefit of the doubt, but call them out. Now, when I'm doing workshops and talks, people always say to me, how could you possibly give a person the benefit of the doubt, but call them out anyway? Well, the way to give them the benefit of the doubt and call them out is to use these three powerful words. And this is step three. Simply say, I don't understand. Tell them you don't understand. That's it. Just say, I don't understand. We call this dispassionate developmental inquiry. It's the purest. It's the most unscathed place you can come from. And when you say, I don't understand, or engage in developmental inquiry, one of two things happens. What happens is that the bias that you sense is called out, but comfortably. So the bias towards you is unearthed, right? So you don't need to say, you gave the job to her, but you didn't give it to me. That actually comes out in the course of the conversation, right? Because when you say, I don't understand, the, 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 the presumed perpetrator, who typically is a senior person, but not always, will say to you, well, what don't you understand? Or let me show you. And now you're into a conversation which would have otherwise been sticky for you to get into. So you're now into a bias type conversation, right? And the key is to maintain that I don't understand type questioning. And we call that maintaining developmental inquiry. Just come from a place of developmental inquiry. And what you're going to find is that you'll unearth either bias towards you, right? It will unearth itself. Or, and this is what a lot of people aren't ready for or comfortable with, you'll unearth your own reverse bias. That is your misinterpretation of bias in the moment, right? And so once you've unearthed that, either by, once you've unearthed the bias, you can then move to step four, which is to collaboratively agree next steps. So there are four steps there. So let me just recap. Step one is, is mindset. That is, leave your baggage in the lobby. Racial bias. You can't bring 400 years of slavery to the table. Mm -hmm. You can't bring the, the ills of the colonial empire. You can't bring the suffragette movement to the table. You've got to drop it, right? So step one is drop that. Step two is give the person the benefit of the doubt, right? Give them the benefit of the doubt. And the way that you do that is focus on the issue at hand, not wider bias. Give them the benefit of the doubt, right? But call them out anyway. How do you call them out? 
those three powerful words, I don't understand, engage developmental inquiry, right? And then step four, collaboratively agree next steps. Very simple. That's the process. Well, um, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And what I love with the I don't understand is it it prompts curiosity. Tell me more. Let's work together. Let's collaborate. Let's talk about it so we don't assume. Back to your point exactly. earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, and it's more good news, by the way. It, it is. It's fantastic. So I want to segue because you have a brilliant test on your website that people can take to really measure how they approach bias, because as you you've so wisely uh, shared today, it's hard and and it's confusing. And we've got the mind reading myth, so many things <laughs> going on, right? And part of it is what are we saying and what are we not saying? So tell us more about this test on your website that might provide additional clarity. Yeah, so we have something called Masaku's Bias Navigation Test. Now, I'm sure a lot of people may be aware of the Harvard uh, 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 test, uh, uh, implicit bias test. Well, this is something slightly different, which is called the Masaku's Bias Navigation Test. And basically, uh, from an organizational standpoint or from an individual standpoint, it it, 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 it identifies how you look at career stifling bias. And then it tells you what's the best way, given the way that you're looking at it at the moment, for you to navigate bias, what mindset, what approach you need to take. It's a very simple, very powerful test. And I would encourage all of your listeners to, to take it. And they can find it at um, navigatingbias.com. Brilliant. And we'll add that to the show notes as well, Buki. Well, I could speak with you all day, but I know that we've got a, a massive time difference and it is evening for you, my friend. So I want to honor the rest of your night. But what's what's one thing that you want to leave this global audience with as we bring this conversation to a close? Oh, that's a big question. I think the big, the, I think the main thing that I would like to leave the audience with is when it comes to career stifling or unconscious bias or unconscious bias in the workplace, what I want people to do is accept the multi-directional nature. Accept the, it's a two-way street, not a one-way street. That is when you sense bias, it could be the other person's or it could be yours. If we can accept the multi-directional nature of bias, and this is really important, then the strategies and the solutions that we uh, used to address it will by definition be inclusive and collaborative. Whereas at the moment, um, it, when we look at it as a one-way street, where we're excluding the people who are mostly on the receiving end of unconscious bias, and we're demonizing the people that we're saying are the perpetrators. And so we don't want to demonize and we don't want to demean. And by accepting the multidirectional nature, we have a more collaborative, inclusive approach. Buki Mosaku, I learned so much from you today, and I loved your book. It's called I Don't Understand, Navigating Unconscious Bias in the Workplace. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise, and I am thrilled that this global audience will learn from you. The book is available on Amazon and all major book retailers, but Buki, perhaps you can share how our listeners can keep in touch with you after the show. Yeah, so uh, thank you, Caroline. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, so you can, uh, 
Well, there are a couple of ways. So you can find me on my site, which is bukimosaku.com, B-U-K-I-M-O-S-A-K-U.com. That's one way. The other is um, I'm on all the on the, all the socials, but particular LinkedIn, you can get me there. And of course, my uh, book um, is available in all all media, or, or sorry, all, 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 all the outlets, including Amazon, Waterstones, and Barnes and & Nobles, and everything else. So you should be able to catch me on, a, on one of those. Fantastic. I wish you continued success, my friend, and I hope our paths cross again. Me too. Thank you. Your Working Life is now available on all major podcast platforms, and I'd love to hear from you. So let me know how we're doing. You can find me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. And a special shout out to my extraordinary podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. We now have listeners in 16 countries. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.